This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Hello, my name is Kay Winnigal, and I'd like to pay my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard on Radio Skid Row. Here's the climate news this week. September 7th was the first international day of clean air for blue skies. Around 90% of people go through their daily lives breathing harmful polluted air, which has been described by the United Nations as the most important health issue of our time. Transport continues to be responsible for the premature deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. Vehicles continue to spew fine particulate matter, ozone, black carbon and nitrogen dioxide into the atmosphere. It's estimated that treating health conditions caused by air pollution costs about $1 trillion per year globally. Concern about this type of pollution dovetails with the increased climate action to tackle the climate crisis. This is an environmental issue as well as a health issue, and actions to clean up the skies would go a long way to reducing global warming. Other harmful environmental effects include depleted soil and waterways, endangered freshwater sources, and lower crop yields. With environmental effects becoming increasingly interconnected, a new global report on air pollution, published by the UN Environment Program, UNEP, on Thursday, underscores that improved air quality is key to tackling the triple planetary crisis of climate change, biodiversity loss, and pollution and waste. A senior UN official has warned on September 6th that climate change will wreak havoc across the Australian economy if coal is not rapidly phased out. He reiterated the need for countries of the Intergovernmental Economic Organisation, OECD, including Australia, to stop using coal by 2030 and by 2040, but for all others. Most developed countries have signed up to a target of net zero emissions by 2050. Due to its reliance on coal-fired power, Australia is one of the world's largest carbon emitters per capita. But Prime Minister Scott Morrison has resisted committing to a timeline to set a net zero greenhouse gas emissions target for 2050. Mr Hart from the UN said, We fully understand the role that coal and other fossil fuels have played in Australia's economy, even if mining accounts for a small fraction, around 2%, of overall jobs. But it's essential to have a broader, more honest and rational conversation about what is in Australia's interests. The British government secretly dropped a series of climate pledges in order to secure a post-Brexit trade deal with Australia, leaked emails appeared to show. Liz Truss, the Trade Secretary, and Kwasi Kwarteng, the Business Secretary, decided to drop both of the climate asks from the text of the UK-Australia agreement in order to get it over the line, according to an email from a senior official. A binding section that referenced the Paris Agreement temperature goals was scrubbed from the accord after pressure from the Australian government, which has a notoriously weak record on climate action. 
The embarrassing revelation comes just weeks before the government is due to host a landmark UN climate conference, COP26 in Glasgow, where it is supposed to ask countries to make stronger commitments to cutting emissions. Just last month, Boris Johnson claimed any trade deal with Australia would include a chapter on trade and environment, which not only reaffirms commitments to multilateral environmental agreements, including the Paris Agreement, but also commits both parties to collaborate on climate and environmental issues. According to a new study, climate change could be causing animals around the world to grow larger ears, beaks and tails, as our heating planet forces them to rapidly shapeshift in order to survive. Decades of monitoring how animals are adapting to global warming has shown that with a third of the species possibly facing extinction, many are changing their breeding and migration patterns to avoid the new levels of heat and in some cases shrinking to better regulate their body temperatures. In a phenomenon known as Allen's Rule, animals in warmer climates tend to have larger appendages, such as ears, beaks, legs and tails, which they use to dissipate heat. In new research, scientists report finding widespread evidence of changes in appendage size in response to global warming from the Arctic to tropical regions of Australia. Ms Riding, a PhD student in ornithology at Australian Deakins University, says, a lot of the time when climate change is discussed in mainstream media, people are asking, can humans overcome this? Or what technology can solve this? And it's high time we recognise that animals have to adapt to these changes. But this is occurring over a far shorter timescale than would have occurred through most of evolutionary time. The climate change that we have created is heaping a whole lot of pressure on them. And while some species will adapt, others will not. A landslide caused by melting permafrost has closed the only road to Alaska's six million acre Denali National Park. The slow-moving Pretty Rocks landslide sits halfway along the 92-mile road that winds across the six million acre park, home to the largest mountain peak in North America. The rapidly moving permafrost underneath the, the road triggered a landslide that made the road too unstable for use and brought an early end to the tourist season, say park officials. The National Park Service says the thaw has been going on for decades, but has sped up dramatically this summer because of the climate crisis. Changing climate is driving frozen ground to thaw, resulting in unpredictable and increasing landslide movements at pretty parks that are unprecedented in the history of the park road, Donald Stryker, Denali's superintendent, said in a statement. Thanks for joining me on a very fascinating and challenging topic, geoengineering. The United Nations Climate Report, released recently, presented a major leap forward in predicting how geoengineering to limit global warming might affect the planet, although scientists say the greatest hurdle remains deciding whether or not to use the controversial methods. The United Nations panel addressed two types of engineering in the report, solar radiation management and greenhouse gas removal but the report made no recommendations on whether to use either method. The panel could give guidance on how decisions on geoengineering should be made in another report that's due in 2022. Over the next few shows, we'll look at what geoengineering is, investigate the types of geoengineering that are being proposed, 
what the pros and cons are of the different methods. And finally, if or how we manage them effectively on a global scale. There will also be presentations of a couple of different types of geoengineering projects that are currently taking place. We are very lucky to have key strategic thinkers contributing to this discussion. Philip Sutton and David Spratt co-authored the book Climate Code Red in 2008, which highlighted how humanity can, in practice, take emergency actions at emergency speed for a rapid transition to a post-carbon safe climate future. Raymond Pierre Humbert, a physicist from Oxford University, will present his view on solar engineering. Today, David Spratt will discuss and outline the types of geoengineering and what the ramifications are on the planet. He's a climate policy analyst, co-founder of Carbon Equity Network, and the director of Breakthrough, National Centre for Climate Restoration. David, firstly, can you tell us what is meant by geoengineering and what other terms are being used? Well, this is you know, a big debate that's happening now. Another term that's used is climate interventions. It's not terribly well defined because some people say geoengineering or climate interventions are any human activity which consciously uh, alters the climate system, by which definition every time you build a new coal mine, you alter the, the climate system. Uh, but climate interventions are really positive actions to try and undo some of the damage. And there are basically, they fall into two large categories which are not really related to each other and, and both are necessary. First um, is what's called carbon dioxide removal. That is trying to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide in the air because it's too high already to get us back down to a safe level. We know, for example, when humans started burning fossil fuels in quantity, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was about 280 parts per million. It's now up to 420. And the last time we had 420, the world was three degrees warmer and sea levels were 25 metres higher. So the, the, the argument about carbon dioxide removal is that the current levels of greenhouse gases, let alone what we're going to put up from tomorrow onwards, are already too high, so we've got to get them down. So one category is carbon dioxide removal. The other is what's called albedo management, that is the reflectivity of the planet and the atmosphere, uh, because we know, for example, that greenhouse gases work when uh, solar radiation comes in through the atmosphere. Some of it stopped, some of it hits the Earth's surface and then it's reflected back. And as it's reflected back, greenhouse gases are holding more of it in. We're also changing the reflectivity of the planet's surface as ice melts. Light reflecting ice is replaced by dark sea, which absorbs more heat. So there's a whole range of technologies or technique, techniques to try and bounce more light back into the atmosphere and have less heating the planet. So they're the two categories. So with albedo management, does that produce fast cooling strategies and carbon dioxide more slow cooling strategies? Carbon dioxide removal is a relatively slow strategy. I mean, we've been putting uh, between two and three parts per million of, of carbon dioxide in the air for you know decades now, and it would require an enormous effort to get two or three parts per million out of the atmosphere each year. I mean, we're putting up 40 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide each year by burning fossil fuels. To draw down that amount is a really big effort. That's a long-term slow process whereas changing the reflectivity is something that can happen really quickly. In each of these categories, there's a number of technologies that are being proposed. So can we get into more detail about each of them, starting with the albedo management or as some people call it, solar 
radiation management? So, look, there's a, there's a lot of different things here. The first is we know that there are particles in the atmosphere called aerosols, which uh, can be dust, for example, from dust storms, but mainly sulfates which are a byproduct of burning fossil fuels. So as we burn fossil fuels, um, sulfates are put into the atmosphere and they are providing a temporary cooling of perhaps up to one degree at the moment. So uh, without those sulfates, the whole system would be another degree warmer. And we know that sulfates have this effect because it's exactly what happens when a volcano goes off. So the most classic recent example is Mount Pinatubo, I think in 1991, uh, which put a huge amount of, of dust <laughs> <laughs> and rocks and sulfates in the atmosphere and it effectively cooled the planet by about 0.5 or 0.6 of a degree for 18 months until that all settled down so it works so if you can put sulfates back up there you will actually cool the planet this is the most controversial that's that's a global thing then there are uh, a new proposals around the idea of using mirrors to reflect more energy back. This is a process that's been uh, advocated and designed by a guy called Ye Tao at Harvard. Uh, people might have seen some of his presentations. It's called MWER. He says, all you need to make a lot of mirrors is, is sunlight and sand. And there's a lot of that on this planet. And that's an interesting proposal. I don't think it's been proved yet. But once again, it's reflecting more energy back then there are things which are more regional in character. And in fact, I mean, there's a, a small experiment going off the Queensland coast at the moment, partly related to the Barrier Reef, which is called marine cloud brightening. So clouds can both reflect uh, incoming sunlight and, and hold in energy. And uh, uh, it's, it's well known that if you can make the clouds what they call brighter or whiter, they'll reflect more energy back and cool the atmosphere underneath it. And that basically involves spraying sea salt uh, up in the atmosphere into the clouds. So it's being tested there. And that's the big proposition for the Arctic as well. So there, there's three examples. Putting sulfates up in, into the upper atmosphere, mirrors and, and brightening clouds. Can we uh, just talk about the, the mirrors? What sort of scale would that be on if it was going to be introduced at all? Look, it's 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 large scale, very large scale. But as he says, you know, um, the place where you can manufacture mirrors really well are deserts, because what you basically need is solar thermal energy to um, heat the, the sand, the silicon, to a, a point where you can manufacture mirrors, and you can deploy them there. So, I mean, you put them on every rooftop, for example. I um, mean, I know this in some parts of Australia, I think, was it California, they're talking about mandating a law. Maybe it was the ACT, where all rooftops from now on have to be a light colour rather than a dark colour, which has, has, has an effect as well. So, I mean, if you have an integrated plan, uh, having reflective roofs is not, um, is not rocket science. There was another one that was talked about, and, and you've just mentioned it, about the Arctic and um, Antarctic ice melting by... Is this, is this is it the proposal by Sir David King? Yes, yes. Yes, yes. So, so uh, this is really interesting. Um, Sir David King was the chief scientist in the UK for two prime ministers. Uh, I think Brown and Blair, he then advised the next two conservative prime ministers. So, you know, he's got a long track record across politics, a very eminent scientist, and he's now uh, set up a thing at Cambridge called the Centre for Climate Repair. Uh, to exactly look at this issue and people may have seen recently in the lead up to the recent IPCC report release 
but he also was involved in setting up a group of scientists around the world called the Climate Crisis Advisory Group. The Climate Crisis Advisory Group, which has put out two or three uh, publications that have really been up in the media, you know, almost every day, trying to tell a, you know, a good, strong story. And he, his work is really worth reading. I noticed on the website they've just put out a report after the IPCC's come out, and it's called the final warning bell. So anybody who wants to just Google climate crisis advisory group and look for the final warming bell, there's a there's a really short report there, and they make some, you know some really unarguable points. He he says first of all that we need to get emissions down fast. Uh, no doubt about that. He says um, we need to have drawdown and we've got to he says, basically look at any drawdown technology that's capable of doing a billion tonnes a year. So we don't have to pick between the drawdown technologies. Any bit of work and cost effective should all be used. And the third thing he says, and this is you know what we're talking about today, he says the Arctic Circle is arguably already beyond its tipping point. That is that you know, the sea ice is being lost at a, at a very large rate. We know that the Arctic is warming three times faster than, than the global average. I mean, there's data coming out now that Greenland may be past its tipping point, and we're also seeing methane releases in permafrost. I mean, and permafrost is a really big carbon store that, that if it was seriously mobilised, would take the planet beyond all human control and probably beyond the capacity of human civilization to survive in, in those circumstances. So, I mean, the Arctic is really the big one, and what he's saying is that we need to refreeze the earth's poles and glaciers to correct the wild weather patterns slow down the ice melt stabilize the sea level and break the food feedback loops that are relentlessly accelerating warming and he said in our recent report which we put which we put out he wrote a forward for it uh, the report's called degrees of risk he said in there once again as he said earlier this year he says we have three to five years to do the things to, to save humanity. And, he, and he's talking about the Arctic. So he's talking about, can we get cooling in the Arctic to stop the system flipping out? And their, their main proposal at the moment is, is the one we talked about, which is marine cloud brightening. And they're doing serious work at Cambridge at the moment with colleagues around the world about how exactly you could deliver that salt spray up into the atmosphere to get that cooling. I mean, none of this is proved, but he says, and I think he's right, it's just necessary. And what about the ones where you block the warm ocean water from reaching and melting the ice shelves that slow oh, the glacial outflow? Uh, I think that's a bit inside science fiction territory. I think the idea that you can build a concrete dam at the end of an ice sheet uh, to stop it moving so quickly is uh, a nice idea at the end of a good bottle of red. I'm not sure it's a practical idea. <laughs> And, and then draining the lubricating water flowing underneath the glaciers. Well, so. that, 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 that's another one. I mean, we, we know that as, for example, on Greenland and Antarctica, as the uh, ice melts, uh, it just doesn't melt from the top, but um, you get a, a wet layer underneath. We've seen those incredible photos in Greenland of water melting and forming lakes on the top and plunging down to what are called moorlands, a, a kilometre or more to the bottom of the ice sheet. And that water lubricates the ice sheet so it moves more quickly and the sea level rises more quickly. So the idea is if you can pump out or reduce the amount of water at the bottom of the ice sheets, it may cool them down as well. But uh, I, I mean, I mean, all these questions are a question of feasibility, scale, and cost. I mean, whether it's drawdown or, or um, uh, reflectivity issues, is the technology proven? Is it is it relatively safe? Is it of net benefit? Can you do it at really large scale? And how much is it going to cost? They're they're always the issues. 
Of course, yes, and and we know very little about any of these. Well, not, 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 not enough about each of them. I mean, I think marine cloud brightening um, is relatively safe and it, it will work. The, the question is whether technologically you can make it happen. Uh, where, whereas with using aerosols and solar radiation management by putting aerosols in the upper atmosphere, there are, you know, there's some bigger questions, of course, of the global scale. I mean, for example, we know when Mount Pinatubo erupted in the two years after that, uh, two of the world's biggest rivers, uh, river systems, including the Ganges, had record low rainfall. Because, oh. you know, because, because blocking some incoming radiation affects the, the, the Earth's circulatory systems and maybe monsoons will shift and so on. We don't exactly know, but, I mean, none of these without cost. And the mm. question is, what's the cost and the benefit? And, and down the track, it will be, I mean, I have said this before, it's a question of what's the least worst option. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a guy called Mike McCracken, a very eminent climate scientist in the U.S., uh, who's now retired, who wrote a very persuasive article I read a few years ago. His name is Mike McCracken. The article is called The Rationale for Accelerating Regionally Focused Climate Intervention Research. So um, he's, he was back then five years ago arguing for you know, more research on the sort of thing that David King was talking about, about regionally rather than globally focused. And he said, look, it's a bit like COVID. If you wait too long, you won't catch up. His argument, and I think it's really true, is that you have to move really quickly before the problem gets out of control. I mean, as we've seen with New South Wales and COVID, waiting and scratching your head is not a really good option. Yes, and, of course, there's a huge argument going around with all the scientists as to when is the right time. So some argue a long time away and some argue right now. It's well, a bit yes, of a fixed I mean, question. There's a, there's a wide range of, of views. I mean, I think Mike McCracken and, and Sir David King, uh, as I said, is on the record as saying what we do in the next three to five years matters. He says we have got to work out in the next year or two whether this technology to, to cool the Arctic is feasible. If it is, we've got a year or two to persuade some governments to do it. And then within a year or two, we've got to be doing it because the Arctic is, is, on the, is right on the cusp of spinning out of control and essentially accelerating warming and, and engaging and passing further tipping points. It will take the system beyond human control, and then it will oh. be too late. I mean, I noticed, um, and I know this is a bit sobering, that Professor Hans-Joachim Schellenhuber, who some of your listeners will have known because we've spoken about him before, who was for many years the director of the Potsdam Institute in Germany, advised Chancellor Merkel, advises the Pope. He gave a little interview in German, and there's one sentence which has been translated, which I tweeted yesterday, and which he says, I'm telling you that we're putting our kids onto a global school bus that will, with 98% probability, end in a deadly crash, wow. unquote. So, I mean, he's saying what King and, and, and others are saying, you know, we're, we're right on the edge. We have got a, a chance to get out of this, but with time, the military always say time is not on our side. Well, it's certainly true of climate change as well and COVID too. Yeah, and look, just as an aside, I was speaking to Raymond Pierre Humbert and he was saying we're nowhere near tipping points and and not even rubbish, think of it. Rubbish, rubbish. I mean, look. I mean, the peer the, the peer the peer reviewed science says that the uh, as as the climate crisis rising group says the Arctic Circle is arguably already beyond its tipping point. We know that that the same is true of the West Antarctic glaciers. In twenty fourteen, scientists said you don't need any more climate change for the Arctic glaciers to 
to slide into the sea. We know we know that the Barrier Reef is going to be dead in 10 years because we've lost three quarters of it. And at 1.5 degrees, where we'll be in 10 years, it will bleach two years in three. I mean, at the moment, it's bleaching one year in three. At 1.5, it's likely to bleach two years in three, and it takes 10 years to recover. So coral reefs are past their tipping points. I mean, there are now serious debates about the Amazon. I mean, in the last six months, there have been uh, some peer-reviewed papers coming up saying that the eastern half of Amazonia is now a net emitter of carbon. That is, more carbon is coming up from the, the Amazon through, um, through fires and uh, decreased um, productivity than it is drawing down. I mean, trees are supposed to be one of the great carbon stores and the Amazon is turning into its opposite. There's a, a really big debate at the moment about whether Greenland has passed its tipping point. So the idea that tipping points are 50 years away is, um, I just think, scientifically ignorant. And, and the problem, of course, with tipping points is you can't definitely say they're past until way after they've occurred, you know, because there's a period where it looks like they're occurring and you look back and write the history and say, oh, yes, it happened then. But, you know, history is not a, a good guide to climate action. It's, it's the precautionary principle that we re- need right now. Very good point. Okay, so let's get on to um, carbon dioxide removal. What are the yes. technologies that are being looked at at the moment look i think i think there's basically there's, there's three categories of things so things which would which we would call enhancing nature then there are things related to mechanical chemical processes uh, and then there's carbon capture and storage so if we look at each of them in turn the natural system ones are the ones that i think are, are talked about most so people talk about uh, restoring natural systems reforestation growing trees, uh, enhancing wetlands, and so on. I mean, the problem at the moment is that those carbon stores are not actually doing drawdown. We're now in a process of negative drawdown. I mean, things like the Amazon uh, or the kelp forests, which are supposed to be storing carbon, are actually being degraded. So the first thing is to stop the degradation and then start to rebuild them. So it's about that process of, of rebuilding those natural carbon stores, whether they're in the ocean or on land. A second one, of course, is storing more soil in the carbon uh, to restorative agriculture, you know, which has fair potential as well. Uh, a related one is, is biochar, um, which is also in the agricultural field. There are, there are others where, you t- where people have talked about increasing um, the, the capacity of, for example, algae through putting iron fertilisation into oceans, putting chemicals or substances into the ocean that increase the capacity for carbon to be to be stored. And there's another one as well, which is a natural process as um, too, which is really interesting. There's a natural process whereby silicates in the Earth's surface in rocks, uh, where they're really predominant, can break down and absorb carbon dioxide and help fix carbon dioxide from the atmosphere in, into the Earth. And there's the idea that if you can expose more rock, grind it to a powder, distribute it, particularly in warm, moist climates where it works better, you can enhance the, the amount of rock weathering. So they're all in the natural part of carbon dioxide removal. At the other end of the spectrum is the idea that you can build machines, which people have built at sm- small scale, that can trap CO2 by chemical means and then you sequester it. These are called direct air capture. They exist in small scale. Basically, you need a way to capture the CO2 by chemical means or a membrane and then squeeze the CO2 out of the membrane and get rid of it somehow or other into a solid or underground. And then the third area is what's called carbon capture and storage, which has a controversial history because the fossil fuel industry keeps on 
promising that you can have power plants with carbon capture and storage. But, you know, the Australian government's maybe spent a billion dollars on this technology and it's never worked at scale. There's now talk around producing hydrogen in Latrobe Valley using carbon capture and storage as well. But the first stage, the plant's not actually going to have any carbon capture and storage. So this is a fraught area. But in terms of drawdown, the idea is that you can take plant material, whether it's, it's, it's crops that you grow or trees or things at the side of the road, uh, burn them in a power station one way or another to produce energy, then capture all the carbon dioxide and pump it underground capture and store the carbon dioxide, which actually happens in the fossil fuel industry in that at the point of production of oil and gas, particularly oil, there's been a long practice of the industry to capture some of the CO2 as it goes out and pump it back underground in order to push more oil out. But carbon capture and storage is different when you've got to transport it halfway around the world to, to store it because where you can grow the plants and not where the oil wells are. So this is called bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, and it's become a bit of a cargo cult. Uh, everybody thinks it's going to solve all the problems, but it was really put in the, into the Paris Agreement as a way to square the ledger. And, and I think we have to be very, very circumspect about thinking about it because at the scale at which some of the models use carbon capture and storage, you would actually be significantly reducing the amount of land available to grow crops to feed people. I mean, I had a look at some, some um, scenarios which the world's central banks have produced, uh, an organisation called the Network for Greening the Financial System. They have the, all these net zero 2050 scenarios. And if you have a look at them, they're assuming that global GDP will double in the next 30 years, which is an interesting idea since we're past sustainability now, that population will increase by 2 billion people. And those two figures basically mean that the demand for food would go up by about 50%. Within their models, the amount of land for crops actually decreases 8% because it's being used for bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. And I don't see how you can produce 50% more food with 10% less land in the context that they're talking about it. So that's the three ways. Natural systems, machines that take CO2 out of the air and, and bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. money all the time get the pennies get the dimes get the dollars is the mind state of the human race people on a paper chase the environment is fragile and we've been on the gradual declining in a lifetime or lose the battle get burned by volcanoes get blown by tornadoes because mother nature signals is trying to warn nato we got a new terror threat it's called the weather more deadlier than chemical and nuclear together it's hotter in the winter even hotter in the summer jesus or buddha somebody come and help us out Lord, come down and help us out Send us an angel, help us out S.O.S. Help us out Looking all around in the marching world Changing Open up your eyes, you can see things We go ranging Behind the gates, ignorance, it is state of mind Cause they formulate a plan just to penetrate us 
You see, they stimulate us with fear, manipulate us. Each year they dominate, dividing us like calculators. And we can't add it up, cause calculators do the math for us. And here they come chopping down and chopping down the rain for us. Fucking up our air for us, they don't really care for us. And we can't complain because the only one to blame is us. The gas is rising up, but we keep on filling up. CO2 levels got the whole planet heated up. It's blazing in the winter, even hotter in the summer. Muhammad Jehovah, somebody come and help us out. Lord, come down and help us out. Send us an angel, help us out. SOS, help us out. Looks like we ain't gonna figure it out. Lord, come down and help us out. Send us an angel, help us out. SOS, help us out. Looking all around in the Washington world. Swept by a tsunami Rosses in Jamaica Will get hit by a quake That registers something like 8.8 You see a situation's happening With our planet Cause 20 years ago We took it for granted We should've took advantage And reversed the damage Instead of just pumping And selling and slanging the gas And while we purchased the gas We was watching soap operas While they steady brainwashed the masses Cause they can make a vehicle That runs off ashes But they don't own a patent for that And that's exactly what's happening Corruption and bullshit politics The planet's gonna die Cause the bullshit politics It's hotter in the winter Even hotter in the summer And ain't nobody coming to the rescue To help And that was a song called SOS by Will and I. That song was released nearly 30 years ago. Sadly, our planet is in an even more diabolical situation now. Now we'll go to the second part of the geoengineering discussion with David Spratt, where he covers the issues with geoengineering after describing what the current engineering geoengineering options are in the first part. So the use of, and we've touched on this just before, the use of geoengineering has been a discussion topic for a long time, but scientists seem to be divided on whether to look at trying it or even whether to do trials to see if there's potential for the implementation of geoengineering. What are the reasons for this? Look, I think I think things are changing. I mean, there, there are I mean there are a couple of big issues with with with, with climate interventions. The first is the, the moral hazard argument in that there's a concern that 
if you can cool the planet without reducing use of fossil fuels, then the fossil fuel industry will use that as an excuse to make merry. That's obviously not valid because uh, you need to do both. And in fact, it doesn't work because as you put more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, you also make the oceans more acidic and they'll die if you keep on doing it. So it doesn't solve the ocean acidification problem. So that's the moral hazard risk. The other risk is called the termination risk. That is, if, if you are for 10 or 20 years, and it's just a relatively short term thing you need to do cooling the planet and then stop for whatever reason stop doing the cooling then you get a really rapid jump in, in warming that will have you know devastating effects i think the debate is changing and i think more and more scientists are beginning to see there's a need for it even ones who are more reluctant before i won't name names in australia but i know scientists who i think have significantly changed their opinion in the last 10 years you know you have government uh, funded research in the UK, in the US in particular, for, for this work. You have the US Academy of Sciences uh, bringing out reports on it regularly, and you're having a serious debate now, and, and the research is being done. The Chinese government have been doing not unrelated work for a long time. I mean, the Chinese government has been involved in cloud seeding. It's, it's more weather intervention than climate intervention. And I was just reading a piece in The Guardian where they said 35,000 people in China are employed in cloud seeding. Wow. That's a- it's, it's, it's a big story. And, I mean, they have a, a massive plan for an artificial snow and rain program that will cover 5.5 million square kilometres which they are planning and implementing now, particularly on the Tibetan Plateau. I mean, the great rivers of China run off the Tibetan Plateau, so do the, the rivers of, of Southeast Asia, which is a worry. And what they're trying to do is do cloud seeding to get more rain into the tops of those rivers. But they also have this idea of trying to engineer circumstances where they can redirect the moist atmosphere off the Tibetan Plateau further north into the plains of China to provide more rain which might be good for the plains of, of China, but it's not going to be so good for the Mekong and, and rivers that are, are running off the Tibetan plateau when they have left, less water in them. So, I mean, this stuff, this sort of, uh, I would call it weather intervention, is already happening at a large scale. And there's no global agreement to do it. I'm sure other countries in Southeast Asia are unhappy about it. So it's not that you can say, well, look, there's not global governance on this, so it won't happen. I mean, the fact is when people decide it's in their national interest, they will do it. And that makes the governance issue really important that, you know, they try, they try and have a decent discussion globally and find some conventions to manage climate interventions. But the simple point is, for example, in the Arctic, the powers who have a direct interest in the Arctic, if they decide to do it, they'll do it. So, you know, it, it, practically speaking, a lack of governance will not necessarily stop these interventions from physically happening. So that's answered my question on whether there are any global treaties to regulate geoengineering. And no, this... then it raises another one, that given that there aren't, as you say, is that another reason not to do this? Or does it is it immaterial that we say, well, well thought... let's not do geoengineering? Because we're going to anyway, we already are. I mean, my point of view is that this research needs to be done as a matter of priority and we've got to research everything that could possibly work. We don't pick one winner and just research that. But if we're looking at, for example, carbon dioxide removal, we look at all the things that could possibly work and we research them all in parallel because we need all the levers we can get 
as Sir David King says, anything that can feasibly get a, a billion tonnes of CO2 out of the atmosphere in a year, that's effective, that's relatively safe, that's at a reasonable cost, we should do it all because we need as many people pushing pushing the, the truck out of the bog as we can. So I think the research absolutely has to go ahead. Um, some of these um, are well known. I mean, soil carbon is no-brainer. There's no, there's no downside to doing that. There's just not the will and the way and the mechanisms uh, to do it yet. Stopping deforestation, um, re- restoring degraded wetlands, restoring degraded forests are no-brainers. I mean, it's going to require some money because we're probably going to have to bribe some corrupt regimes to stop chopping down their own forests because that might be a good investment. I mean, whether it's Brazil or Indonesia or somewhere else. So absolutely, the research needs to be done. Um, there is no real governance on research at the moment, but it's, it's, it's going ahead. And at a certain point, if things get desperate enough, I mean, for example, hypothetically, if you have a country in South Asia that suddenly finds because of climate warming that its monsoon has shifted somewhere else or is less frequent, they might be tempted to have a crack at changing the, the climate in, in their region. I mean, I just see that um, there's a new call because they believe that there are 12 million people in Syria and Iraq are subject to a devastating um, drought and, and food crisis. And we know that the, the dry subtropics, um, that band that runs right through the Mediterranean and across Central Asia is drying. Uh, we've seen the fires in, in Spain, in Greece, in Tur- Turkey. I mean, this is going to have devastating impacts across that whole region, all the way to China and including Iran and Central Asia. So um, at a certain point, people say, well, we're going to have a crack at trying to change this. It, it will become, I think, will, unilateral action will become inevitable if there isn't some broader and, and more desirable global agreement and cooperation on the issue. And do you think that it is possible to get some sort of agreement before it's too late and everybody does whatever they like? Well, it'd be nice if we could have an agreement to reduce emissions, wouldn't it? Well, <laughs> we, well theoretically, we, there is one. <laughs> we, have, we have trouble reaching agreements on the basics at the, uh, at the moment. I think that, you know, the principal problem at the moment is that the global elite politically and in business simply do not want to understand the issue, the physical issue as it really exists. I mean, it's clear if you look at these net zero 2050 emissions and emission scenarios that business is sort of living in a, in a, in a little bit of a la-la land where they think there can be a gradual, slow, incremental change that will solve the problem, and we're way past that now. So I don't think there's a realism about the physical problem yet, but when you know, the former advice of the German government and the, and the Pope says the bus is about to go off the cliff, I think the conversation's changing. I suppose it depends on the technology, but is it a long-term strategy that's required if one is implemented, or can it be switched on and off as required? Well, look, it, it depends on what the, what the technology is. Obviously, if you're trying to enhance natural systems, whether you're handsome today or tomorrow or do it for a year and then stop for a year, it doesn't matter. Or, I mean, all, all progress is, is, is worthwhile. Uh, anything that can draw carbon down um, is worthwhile doing. I mean, with soils, there's a limit. Um, uh, but if, if everything that could be done with restorative agriculture to get more carbon in our soils, over 20 years, you could store, you know, people say somewhere between three and six billion tonnes a year of CO2 in, in, in um, soils reasonably. Um, that's not a never-ending um, project, but do it. It's great. Others are more tricky. If you decide that with solar radiation management, put some sulfates in the upper atmosphere, which is a relatively cheap thing to do. I mean, the effect with Mount, Mount Pinatubu of 
cooling the planet by half a degree. There are estimates because all you need are, are planes that go up high and drop off the sulfates, to put it crudely, that that could be done globally for $20 billion a year. In the global scheme of things, the things about solar radiation management is we don't know that it's safe or of net benefit, but it's effective, it works, and it's cheap. Uh, but you can't start and stop it. That's the termination risk. So the risks vary with the technologies. It's pretty scary when you say we need to do everything we can and we need to just somehow manage the risks that are involved with it. And there are often unpredictable effects on different regions of the planet, as you've pointed out. How can that be managed? Well, that's that's the big issue, and that's where you need the research. Obviously, most, most of carbon drawdown, um, enhancing natural systems, if you can get chemical machines that can draw it down, that's safe. There are very few you know, side effects that you need to worry about. So uh, restorative agriculture, these things are not problematic. In terms of um, changing the regional global reflectivity, um, that's obviously the really big issue. And you, know, you get both into a technical debate. Um, is this technologically feasible? Can it be done? Can, can, for example, can we actually whiten the clouds because the, the, the salt spray's got to be of a, a certain diameter? If, it's, if, it's, if the spray's too thick, it has the reverse effect. You know? So the, there are technological issues with this and therefore deployment issues. As I said, with putting sulfates in the upper atmosphere, the deployment issues are, are relatively low. Then there's the cost issue and then there's the unavoidable side effects issues. But if you don't allow or oppose to research, then you'll never resolve those questions. And and my point is, and it's the point of view of the the Centre for Climate Repair and David King and Mike McCracken and other scientists, is that if you don't think about doing this, you may not be able to save humanity. You know, we've got one and a half degrees in 10 years. We're going to be at two degrees before 2050, the way things are going. Scientists are saying the hothouse earth effect where tipping points trigger other tipping points and the system basically moves beyond human control, that point is close at hand. It could happen in the next 10 or 20 years that, you know, um, the warming in the Arctic produces such a a spurt of of CO2 and methane from the frozen stores up there that it simply becomes uncontrollable. Um, So time is not on our side and we really have to think about what is the least worst option? There are no best options anymore. There are but, least worst options. Yeah, but given that we don't have any sort of international regulatory, regulatory system, how do we decide what is the least worst option? The, the countries will just do whatever they think is the most effective for them, won't they? Look, I, th- I think that's why there's a big push on the governance issue at the moment that the, associated with the law school at the University of Tasmania. There's a new centre looking at, at, at climate governance. Um, people can, can find their work. Um, people in Australia have done PhDs and postgraduate research on this. I mean, there's a lot of talk about it, uh, but um, it, it hasn't reached the, the, the point where it's anywhere nearer. Um, a diplomatic resolution, if I can put it that way. And, you know, there's, there's, some, there's some big questions um, we've seen with the climate policy-making processes, for example, the IPCC to some extent, and particularly uh, the international um, policy-making conferences, of which the next one's going to be in Glasgow in 70 days, that 
they have diplomatic setups whereby it's tyranny of the minority. If one country opposes, they can block everything, which is why the outcomes in international policy making means so bad because the, the Saudis or the Gulf states or the Russians or Australia can, you know, bugger things up pretty good. And they do pretty consistently. <laughs> and they have. So, I mean, maybe with, with um, the governance issue, it's it's not a global convention with everybody. It's a convention of interested parties. I mean, for example, in the Arctic, if you're going to try and do something in the Arctic, look at the powers who have an interest in the Arctic and try and get them together to sort that out. I mean, I think, for example, um, if China and India and the United States and the EU and maybe South Africa could come to a deal on, on some research governance, that would take us a long way, trying to get five people to agree. Um, that you know have political power and represent different parts of the of, the, of humanity. Um, that might be a, a, a better step than trying to get 180 countries to agree on a governance proposal. I mean, in, oh. in fact, I mean, in, in in this broader climate issue, I mean, we see a lot of contestation between the United States and 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 China at the moment. But in fact, I mean, we need a, a climate treaty um, like we have peace treaties. I mean, the, the, the thing we most definitely need on this planet now is a climate treaty between China and the United States to stop spending their time, you know, boofing up to each other and actually working cooperatively to, to solve these sort of issues. I mean, that, that would be the biggest breakthrough we could get. You know, get off, get, get off your steroids and start doing something useful. With the idea that China and the US can get together and establish a treaty, how likely do you think that is? And how quickly could that happen? International relations is, is not, not my forte, so I think I should take a pass on that. I mean, it is interesting that early on um, in the Biden administration, um, there was some outreach to China on, on climate issues. You don't know what's happening behind the scene. Um, but, you know, it's it's absolutely crucial. I mean, the amount of, of resources that are being wasted on, you know, security confrontation rather than climate. I mean, this is the difference between success and failure. If this is a climate emergency and we really do need to show everything at this, that means diverting resources from, from, from fisticuffs into, in, into doing this because there is a, there is a mutual interest. Um, I can only say a prayer. The, the other really big issue is, of course, the poor countries because they're the ones that are already suffering the most and will continue to do so and they don't have any sort of power in make any of the decision-making processes and any technology that is Im implemented will potentially affect them more than it would other countries. Well, I mean, this is always the way with climate, isn't it, that, that those that are, are most directly affected are those who have contributed least to the problem. I mean, we know, for example, that 10% of the world's population in the way they live and consume is, are basically responsible for 50% of the world's emissions. And if you took that 10%, and reduce their emissions just to the EU average, then you get rid of a third of emissions tomorrow. So this is this is absolutely the issue um, in in terms of this, and, and of course the capacity to adapt and respond to climate impacts and climate risks depends on largely on your economic capacity. Um, so those who are mostly directly affected uh, are often those with uh, a lesser capacity to adapt. Um, as we've seen with COVID as well. 
the most devastating impacts are, are where there isn't a capacity to respond. Uh, so those kind of those countries absolutely need to um, be part of the conversation. One of the relatively lower emitters, given its size of its population, is India. You know, with a really huge population, so they're not all small uh, countries. Some of them really large. In fact, if you take um, just five countries in Asia: China, India, Indonesia. Pakistan and Bangladesh, basically South Asia, South Asia, China and Indonesia. Together they have half of the world's population and, and they are will be some of the most devastated by climate change. Asia is disaster alley for climate change. It's going to hit there harder than anywhere else in the world because of those populations, particularly uh, a lack of water security and, and food crises, which are already manifest in India and in in. in in Pakistan and China has 20% of the world's population but only 6% of its potable water, which is why it's trying to engineer the weather over the Tibetan plateau. Um, so, I mean, these countries who's, who are, are not amongst, I mean, China, a lot of China's income is, is now approaching an EU standard, but the others are relatively low in, in per capita GDP compared to us, are some of the ones who may have the greatest interest in geoengineering, particularly in South Asia. I mean, we, we've seen it in India already. I mean, we've seen partly because of over-exploitation of the water table, we've seen cities running out of water in India. And we've seen in India and Pakistan uh, temperatures, you know, above 50 degrees, which are, are close to unlivable. I mean, South Asia is is on, on the edge of a, a, a climate precipice of, 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 with horrendous outcomes. It's so frightening, so scary, isn't it? And population, is it at the heart of it? Is it? Oh, no, look, as I said, um, a, few, a few rich people consume a lot more energy than most of the rest of the world. You know, if, if the richest 10% reduced their CO2 footprint to just the European Union average, which is not low, but it's not lower than, than the 10%, a third of emissions would be gone. It is Conspicuous consumption, of which we are all guilty too in this country, uh, that's the problem. I mean, we do 20 tonnes a year. You know, there are countries around the world that do less than one. But population needs to be reduced because we can't sustain the population oh, growth that we have at the moment? Well, you know, people say that. I've yet to hear a practical plan about how to do it except to, to increase um, the, the education and health and living standards of people. In, in, in the third world, in the developing world, which seems to be the, the, the most effective way of reducing um, the birth rate. Do you think that people might be a bit cynical about geoengineering um, in as much as it is business as usual? It's all about the economics of the whole um, world environment. We're not actually looking at trying to live more sustainably, develop a, a better economic system manage food and distribution of food more equitably well if it's if it's seen that way it will fail i mean we have a series of interlocking problems and it requires to address them all together i mean that's why we've said it's an emergency that you need a mobilization like you do in war i mean we have a climate problem that absolutely requires three things to be done all at once that is to stop the emissions I mean, we, you know, the current level of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere in the end will produce 25 metres of sea level rise and the world's great coastal cities will all be kaput. 
I mean, so we really have to throw everything at mitigation. We have to draw it down because it's too high and we've got to try and cool the planet until we can get those other two things to work. So those three things really exist. They're the three legs of the chair and without one of those legs, the chair will fall over. And then, of course, we've got the broader sustainability issues. I mean, what are we using? 1.7 planets worth of resources every year and it's getting worse. I mean, these scenarios where people talk about GDP doubling in the next 30 years and not decoupling growth from basic resource use will tip the system over. I mean, we are now reaching a point of unsustainability where you look at the natural world, where you look at insect populations and so on, where the system at some point, like the banks, will just crash. I mean, Professor Will Stephan, who you know was head of climate science at the ANU and is now at the Climate Council and has advised Australian governments, said a couple of years ago, what we've got to do is make climate the first priority of politics and economics. And that, to me, was the perfect definition of, of a climate emergency response. I mean, we literally have to make this the, the first priority and we have to do all those things. If we just pick and choose, it won't work. But I think in doing all those things, climate intervention research and the possibilities of deploying it um, as and where it's, it's feasible to do so, it's got to be part of the story because otherwise the system might just get away from us. Well, I guess the concern is that um, we have had the knowledge for a long time as to how to mitigate this situation and we haven't done it. So what makes you confident that um, we can use these technologies and make a difference? Uh, look, I'm not politically confident. I mean, Sheldon Huber in the quote I used earlier said there's 98% chance that the global school bus will probably end in a deadly crash. I mean, I think a lot of scientists and people who are close to this think that the, the chances of the world reacting with the urgency and speed and dedication and application that's required are relatively low, but they're not zero. I mean, we can't get out of this. It is, it is, it is, it is, it is technologically, economically, financially feasible to get out of this it is not impossible so all that sort of deep adaption and doomism and it's all too late and nothing you can do and you know build a tree house and go and sit in it and wait for the end of the world it's not going to work and it's wrong it's wrong uh, we can get out of this um, whether the political system is capable of honestly assessing the risks and responding to it is a, um, a more problematic question <laughs> yes it certainly is and we'll keep our fingers crossed. So that was the first part of our geoengineering or climate engineering discussion. Check out the next one where we'll have scientist Daniel Harrison talking about the cloud brightening experiment that's happening on the barrier reef right now. Geoengineering is such a contentious issue, but hopefully governments around the world can investigate and ex experiment first to find the best solutions to this vexatious problem. The UK's Natural Research Council has provided £8.6 million for inquiry and development of negative emissions technologies. Germany has a relatively large research program on the critical assessment of all geoengineering technologies. China recently provided $3 million funding for a research program on the natural effects of land and ocean-based geoengineering strategies. The bipartisan infrastructure legislation that passed the US Senate last week includes more than $12 billion in direct support for systems that pull carbon dioxide out of the smokestacks and other technologies that suck the greenhouse gas directly from the air before storing it underground. Energy companies 
Electrical utilities and other industrial sectors have been quietly pushing through a suite of policies that have fast-tracked environmental reviews and allocated billions in federal funding for research and development of carbon capture and storage, which stands to yield tens of billions of dollars for corporate polluters, but may do little to reduce greenhouse emissions. We look forward to all the results there. I wholeheartedly agree with Professor Will Steffen when he says that the climate should be the first priority of economics and politics. Thanks to Will and I for the song, SOS, and thanks very much to David Spratt for the wonderful introduction to our understanding of climate engineering. I wholeheartedly agree with Professor Will Steffen when he says that the climate should be the first priority of economics and politics. In our next show, we will have guests presenting examples of cloud brightening over the Great Barrier Reef and direct air capture and storage projects, as well as a discussion of geoengineering governance issues. So I hope you can catch up with that. I'm Kay Wenigal, and I'd like to thank you for listening to this show. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change.